Welcome to episode two of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my distinguished co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversation about life in the shop and topics in making. So, Eddie, how's it going? Really good, Winston. How are you? Uh, I can't complain. It's a, it's a really beautiful day here. We're recording on a Sunday, for anyone who doesn't know. How are things going in your shop this week? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. I had a, a relatively productive week, finishing up some dragon capsule uh, bottle openers slash table models. Video should be out about the same week that this goes live. Right now, I, I was actually delayed getting to the podcast, sorry about that, um, because I got caught up doing some uh, Fusion 360 work. One of my friends reached out, needed a, a really simple plaque made, and so he sent me a vector, I converted it in, uh, well, he didn't send me a vector, he sent me a JPEG, so I converted it to a vector in Inkscape. And I was trying to figure out the best way to take that image and just sort of pocket it out. Because there's a lot of small features and like an eighth inch end mill can't get into all the corners and stuff. So I was trying to figure out, do I use like rest machining and like two tools? Or do I just spend a couple extra minutes, cut it only with a single tool, skip the tool change? And I think I've gone the lazy route. I'm just going to wait a couple extra minutes for it to cut. I'm not going to do a tool change. I'm going to start with the 16th inch end mill and just finish the entire project with that. How about you? What have you been up to? I saw you've been uh, actually machining on Instagram. Yes. After a long hiatus, I finally uh, ran some carbide and some metal this week. I was off for the whole week, which was nice. Uh, Did a lot of uh, family stuff. Did finally get some time in the shop. I spent most of my shop time doing R&D and modeling and fusion uh, for some upcoming projects that I've got planned, working on the work holding on it. And that's really what I was kind of working on this week is experimenting with some 3D printed uh, work holding for the pocket NC, hoping it's going to hold up to the uh, machining forces. And I machined the, the two pieces that are metal for that, for that fixture. They're kind of a load spreaders. Yeah, that fixture, um, it's basically a 3D printed riser um, are you planning on doing like precision work with that? Like, how are you going to ensure that the, the faces that you're bolting things to are going to be flat and like exactly where you expect them to be? Are you going to machine one of them flat? I'm reluctant to machine on the FDM printed stuff. I don't think that's really going to work well. It's just going to probably tear the filaments apart. I don't know. I've actually not done any research on whether, uh, PLA is machinable. The fibers are so thin. If you start removing material form, basically you're going to lose structural integrity on the part. Uh, So my plan is really get the stock bolted up there. Even if it's not perfectly aligned, I'll be taking measurements of the location of the stock and compensating. You know, if it's at an angle, then I'll know about that in my CAD file and adjust for it. Are you doing solid or are you using a percentage infill for that? I'm using 30% infill, which made it, you know, this is this is my first batch of these and they're going to be tested before I really rely on them. I'm hoping 30% is going to be solid enough that it doesn't move around under machining. Uh, probably test one of them. I'll try to do the most aggressive toolpath I know on adaptive clearing and see if it holds up. I've been told in comments uh, on Instagram to expect them to fail suddenly and catastrophically, so we'll see how that works. <laughs> But yeah, they're gonna. I'll, I'll be doing quite a bit of testing before I actually do anything for real on them. And I have the alternative of making that same part out of a solid piece of aluminum. I could machine it. it just takes a lot longer. But if it holds up for for long term use, then it's probably worth it. If this method of work holding is something you want to do in the future. Yeah, the nice thing about it is I can make different sizes. You know, the model is parametric, so 
I kind of look at the top height I need on the stock versus where the or how high the spindle can reach on the PNC, and I can adjust the riser height to kind of put the stock right where I want it, which has been a problem for me uh, with using the vise. I have kind of two problems with it when I do tall or do plate stock, but hold it where it's standing on edge. It doesn't really uh, stay stable in the vise. It's good at holding you know flat stock with the flat side down, but I need to yeah. do yeah I need to do some uh, three plus two work where I need to get to at least uh, four sides of the of the stock. So I need something that can hold a plate stock vertically. So this this will be my first test. Cool. Yeah, and then if I need uh, to refine it or switch to a machined fixture of the same design, I'll, I'll do that. Do you have a, a project in mind already that you're going to use that work holding method for? Or is this sort of just an experiment? I have several pieces I've been just playing around with R&D that would work well being machined out of a plate that's vertical like that, where I need to get to the front side, the back side. I ultimately uh, try to make that titanium body for my spinner out of uh, a plate held that way. Without coolant, we'll see how that goes. I won't be able to use the PLA for that because it's going to probably be too hot. I also have that uh, commissioned work in Delrin. It's going to be, that's actually what got me working on this fixturing idea in the first place. I need to be able to hold the Delrin vertically. And that's a really small part. So that was kind of what got me thinking about doing it on 3D printer in the first place. I was like, this is going to be pretty, pretty light machining. I just need a lot of access on all sides of the stock. So I just need something that can hold it up. I tried to, to clamp it in the vise and it was just it looked too sketchy it was i was able to wiggle the top of the stock so i, I know i need something a little more solid with probably bolts running through the stock work holding has been a, a problem for me too that's why um for both of my my big five axis projects i made my own work holding setup um, it was basically just an aluminum bar with a hole bored through it so that i could run a bolt and just bolt on whatever larger piece um, i had because their vice it's it's nice, it's cute, it's small, it's low profile, but there's there's kind of a volume limit of what it can hold. So I've been trying to work around that. I saw that. I like that idea of kind of running a or taking advantage of the ER40 collet system. So I think it's on the PNC, that's probably one of the most accurate work holding methods you can use there. Uh, you probably saw I did that stainless steel bar riser. A similar concept to what I'm doing with the 3D printed. It's just it's a little too narrow, uh, one inch bar to hold some of the bigger stock that I want to go machine in the PNC. So I might I might look for a variant that leverages that bar and then has a part that bolts to the top of it that gives me a wider uh, clamping area for stock. That's an that's an alternative to the 3D printed uh, riser fixture that I've got today. So you'll see probably over the next few weeks lots of variations on that. On what I'm doing on uh, work holding on the PNC as I kind of run through what works, what doesn't work. But I, I hope to uh, kind of end up with a pretty reliable kind of approach that can let me rapidly prototype something on the pocket NC. Yeah, well, if that works well, I might have to uh, commission you to make one for me. I'll probably start posting those. Maybe in the show notes, we'll get we'll, st- we'll get started with some show notes and have some links to the the models for the two that I made this week. So, do you want to start rolling into our? Uh question for the week or sort of a more of a topic than a specific question yeah okay in the past before i've had a couple people ask me like hey how do you price your work or how do you make a living in the shop doing cnc work because we know sort of the the business model of a a traditional woodworker um, or furniture maker commission pieces and and how that works but digital fabrication sort of changes that equation a little because some people think it's oh you just load a piece of wood you hit go and you have a part that comes out and you can sell it but 
there, there's still kind of the same factors that go into uh, making a living using your CNC. And uh, I, I kind of want to start today by just talking about what a sound business model looks like, how we price our work, what we sell, why we sell, because that's going to be different for both of us. And to, to sort of just give you a high level overview and maybe just some ideas of how you can plan out what you're doing to actually profit from your either side hustle or hobby, or if this is your, your full-time job, that's great. But I just want to put some ideas out there. And if you have any ideas, you can share them with us on our Instagram, because I'm sure everyone's going to learn from everyone else. So I went into this whole digital fabrication thing as purely as a hobby, especially with the 3D printer. I, I had no no thoughts of making any money or anything. Um, once I got the milling machines, it kind of broadened my horizons a little bit. Uh, I saw you know a lot of the the guys that I follow were selling uh, everyday carry stuff on Instagram, or they're advertising on Instagram, selling it on a website somewhere. And I you know I like that concept. It looks to me like that's their full time job, and they always have inventory, and they're probably killing it on uh, selling, you know, especially some of the knife makers and and some of the other stuff I see on there. And then there's some other ones that are really just they'll make a batch of stuff and they'll have it up for sale, and there's usually more demand than there is supply. So there's either a waiting list or or it's a quickly you know product that quickly sells out, and then he may not sell anything or she may not sell anything for several more months, and then. They mentioned, hey, we just did something new and here it is. And then when they're gone, they're gone. So I kind of like the latter. At least today at this point, I'm not trying to make a full-time living off the machining. It's still, it's for fun. Uh, I do want to grow slowly into bringing more income in. I think uh, for me, the approach is going to be, you know, work on a few projects. If they end up looking like something they could sell in 20 to 50 items, um, then it might be worth exploring interest to see if there's anyone that's willing to buy something like that. That's hopefully, you know, unique, nicely made and small with the machines. I got to stick to small stuff here. I think, uh, the spinners, you know, when I started making those again, it was, it was a modeling exercise. I wasn't even planning on ever machining one, uh, until some folks at work were asking for it, asked me if I could make one, didn't know where that was going to go until I actually machined them and refine the design over, I think I'm end up doing like three different versions of spinners over the last year or so. But sometimes that's like the best way to start things out. You already know you have an audience that's receptive to what you're, you're peddling. So that, that's sort of a, a local word of mouth way to gauge interest for something. Yeah. To me, it was, you know, it was an accidental market, accidental business. Uh, but I was selling offline, I guess, you know, just like you said, word of mouth, friends and family and and friends of friends <laughs> were asking for them. Initially, I was just running a spreadsheet and kind of managing the orders that way. You know, some folks said, hey, you really should try to sell them online. I got through Instagram, you know, some direct messages saying, are these for sale anywhere? And so late last year, I finally decided, let's, let's see if we can, you know, see, see how much demand there is for something like this. You know, fidget spinners, I was, I was a little late to the game on those, but they were fun to make. So I said, you know, I'll kind of limit how many I make in a month and see if I can sell them. So I started a, a Shopify store late last year and put some product up there. And just, I put it up there until they would sell out, you know, a little bit of inventory and then make some more. I basically would, I didn't have any way of collecting uh, like pre-sales or anything like that. So it was either I had inventory and there was product available for sale and then it would sell out. And then eventually I decided to make some more and put them up there and, until those sold. So there was, I wasn't focused on it like John Saunders is on running a business. It was really mm. 
yeah, it was really more of experimentation to see what does it take to learn how to set up an e-commerce store, manufacture a product from scratch, and go through the whole mechanics of selling it, collecting sales tax where necessary, and reporting to the state. So in addition to the store, I also set up an LLC, which I think you've got one too, just to kind of keep the business side separate from the personal. Really good bit of advice. In theory, they're separate, but uh, when you report taxes as a sole proprietor, it's it's all pass-through. It's basically you're just acting as one person, not a company. That's a podcast episode all by itself. So I, I set up a, a multi-member LLC, which has a little bit different tax treatment. Mm-hmm. You, I'm not sure if you have an LLC or a sole proprietorship or a single-member LLC. It, it's a sole proprietorship. Okay, yeah. So I probably could have been fine with that. We'd used LLCs here in the past for some uh, non-shop related small business activity that we had, some property rental and stuff like that. So I was familiar with setting them up. I knew how to do the accounting and taxes for them. So that was kind of, it was probably more of a personal preference than anything. And in Texas, it's super easy to set one up. So I want to go back to something you were talking about before, which was uh, the fact that you didn't really carry a ton of inventory, but you also didn't make things on demand. So is is that sort of just the way you like doing things or just would you have preferred to batch them out or make them on demand if you had the time? What's your preference? Yeah, I started uh, on demand because like I said, you know, the one person would ask for one, then a couple more people would ask for one. So I was doing them one at a time, which was inefficient both in material and the, the way I was kind of managing my stock and my time. Once there was enough demand, at least uh, offline, decided to shoot for making or taking a batch approach to the machining. It was also to learn. I wanted to kind of learn how to do custom fixturing and pretty much taking up the full build volume on the Nomad to do uh, some of the parts. To me, that was, you know, I liked that challenge. It was uh, interesting to see if the Nomad was up to doing light production work. So then, yeah, I, I kind of settled on a batch size of 10 spinners that kind of worked out right for what fit on the bed and and the ancillary parts for the spinners could be running on the on the uh, other mill. Um, so I got to do a lot of, you know, both machines running in parallel. They kind of finished about the same time, and I'd be ready with a batch of 10 to assemble. Yeah, and for selling, the same thing. It kind of let me put a fixed inventory on there. So one of the big things for me was I, I wanted to kind of time box the amount of shop time and machine time I was tying up on the spinners. Because, again, this wasn't, you know, my primary mission wasn't to sell spinners or to sell product at this point in, in my experience with digital fabrication. So I, d- I didn't want to type my machines all the time doing that because I do a lot of fun stuff on them. So I kind of went to batching to control and help schedule uh, my time and the machine time. So I had time in the shop to do other things. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah, and it worked well. Um, for me, I, I would probably, if I develop another product, I would try to be able to do uh, you know, small batches of them and kind of have some inventory before I put them up for sale. Just kind of easier than doing on-demand Although with the pocket NC, I mean, possible to do uh, on demand, especially like jewelry kind of stuff that's fully custom. I see maybe a future doing some stuff like that. That's you know every product's a little bit unique for every customer. The pocket NC is it's easy in terms of the setup. What I found with the uh, dragon capsule that I'm making is I've got like five different tool changes in there. Um, so unless you keep a, a set of tool holders for that particular job. It, there's still a little bit of setup time when you're first rolling into starting production. And that would be one reason why I'd probably rather batch out a couple things than just make something on demand. Yeah, I agree. I think 
the challenge with the small machines is th these really aren't machines that are oriented towards uh, you know, multi-tool batch production, right? There's there's no <laughs> no ATC. There, I wouldn't say they're they're not capable of it because they are. I mean, I you know I I didn't have any problems doing the the spinners. Um, you know, running the Nomad. I think the longest job I ever ran when I was first doing the batch of ten was uh, it was almost twenty hours of machining before I did a lot of optimization and got it down. But you know, the machine can handle it. It's just, you have to kind of know when to be over there to do the tool changes. And uh, yeah, it, it would be hard to run a business bigger than probably, you know, 10 at a time type batch boutique type stuff on these machines. It, it depends on the product, right? So maybe you might be able to come up with a product that fits within the, the constraints of these machines that actually sells really at a good price, right? Or a good margin. So you don't have to make all that many of them. That, that appeals to me. Yeah. Um, so one of the things on Etsy is like uh, a lot of people like customization. And so if you can develop a product that's easy to customize, like you just engrave someone's name or initials on it, like you could do a custom engraved spinner, um, that last, like the, the last mile of customization um, happens all at the very end. So if you make your spinners the way you do now, and then you just keep like, um, like a little fixture, we can just stick down your spinner and engrave it. Uh, that could be a, a way to, to just add a little more value to that product. Um, I did that with the ring holders, ring boxes that I made. Uh, a couple little oak or mahogany boxes, really small, low profile with magnets. And I offered an option for engraving your initials on it. Because um, a lot of people are using these for like engagements and jewelry storage and stuff like that. Uh, so that's that's sort of one way I was able to sort of quote unquote make something on demand. But it was really just... Um, a little added on process to what I was already making. It was, I think, mid last year when I, I started actually trying to sell them. Yeah, I remember those jewelry boxes. They were really neat. I think that was right about the time I first saw your work. I think you'd posted it on the Carbide 3D forum. That's where I first ran across Winston Moy. So I actually did uh, one spinner that was, actually, I did two that were custom, kind of custom products in the end. They were the, you know, the normal spinner, and then I did a, uh, it's like the very first one I made of the new, what I consider the final design, the aluminum with the brass weights. I did that for a friend that asked for, he wanted an engraved center button with the football team logo. He's a coach for Youth City League. I engraved the bear logo on that. I like the idea of being able to do 99% of the work kind of standardized. And then, like you said, the last step, which I actually made a custom fixture to hold the two the two buttons and they were easy to do as the final step to do whatever engraving I wanted on there. That was easy. The one I did for Bantam tools with the engraving actually on the weights and the powder coating, um, that was the spinner I'm probably happiest with, but it was also the one that was the hardest. That would not be, yeah, the process would not scale well. I'd have to charge pretty high price to recover my labor on the, on the ones that have a lot of hand work, especially the, the two, you know, the two color powder coating. That's mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, a lot of work to just to get one done. So speaking of that price, how did you sort of ballpark what a standard spinner would cost? Because that's something a lot of people have difficulty figuring out. Probably the first 20 spinners I gave away, I don't even want to think about how much money I lost <laughs> when I look at the actual. <laughs> I don't think I was even recovering uh, my material costs. Um, yeah, I just was guessing, which was a mistake. Yeah, there was for friends, so that was fine. I wasn't going to charge them a lot anyway, but... Yeah, as I decided to start selling them kind of a little bit more broadly, I made a couple of decisions. One is I decided I wasn't going to include like R&D and product development costs 
you know, really the modeling and cam optimization all the time I spent on that. It's really, to me, that was learning. So yeah. And honestly, like hobby machinists, like I, I don't know about you, but I spend more hours than I let on sitting behind my computer trying to do fusion 360, like just cam work. To me, that stuff is uh, stress therapy. So there's people that pay therapists for what I'm doing in Fusion, you know, or the benefits I get from uh, spending time designing stuff. It's like kind of free uh, stress management. You know, that's part of why it's a hobby, right? We do this because it's fun. But where I, where I did care uh, about costs was, it was really the production costs. So I, I created a spreadsheet and started tracking the things that I consider, you know, stuff that would go into my pricing uh, pricing ideas. So it was really the raw material, uh, brass, aluminum, ceramic bearing for the spinner, which is probably the most expensive single component. And then I, I struggled with labor because um, really the machines, there's a little bit of human labor in there. The machines run a long time, but my actual, like the amount of time I have to spend on say in a, a batch of 10 is an hour and a half, probably spread across the eight hours that it took once I was fully optimized on the machining. Um, so I, I just picked a number of $25 an hour for, you know, machine tending labor. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. I, I just kind of picked that out of the air and probably the labor, the labor part's difficult to really assess on small batch like this. Um, but the rest of it, you know, you definitely want to be covering your material costs. I included, uh, the work holding. So I, I built some custom fixtures and kind of amortized that cost across the, or the raw material cost across, uh, the batches. So that price was always dropping as I did more batches. Uh, I did not account for tooling, which is a miss. Uh, although I didn't really mm-hmm. go through, I broke a few tools. <laughs> I didn't actually wear any out <laughs> yet. Um, but I did break a few, um, those actually add up right. And something when you're selling some, yeah, but mostly it was, uh, the brass was expensive. So once I started tracking costs, uh, I kind of had a margin in mind. I wanted to make at least 50% margin. And that kind of drove the pricing. I ended up settling on a price of about $120 for the aluminum and brass spinner. And they sold okay at that price. I was, I was surprised. My wife thought I was crazy <laughs> selling them for that. When they're, you, know, you go to Walmart and get three for five bucks. So it's like, but well, they're different. You, know, you have to kind of explain the difference. But um, And really, you're still actually probably holding back on that price. Yeah, I've seen much nicer spinning, spinners selling for much higher prices. Um, Actually, that whole EDC spinner category, I watch the pricing pretty closely on uh, every source I can find, like Etsy or some of the other Instagram guys. And I've, I've been noticing even the nicer spinners, uh, they're probably about 50% cheaper than they were this time last year. So it's definitely a, it's a category that's uh, kind of run its course. Yeah, the market's uh, cooling off. Yeah, unless you're Chris Bathgate, you're probably not making a lot of money on spinners anymore. But one of the things... Uh, once I started collecting that data, uh, it was really to help drive the pricing, but I kind of really quickly realized that brass is expensive <laughs> compared to, oh, yeah. yeah. And I was making it the, my first two designs, the whole body of the spinner was brass. It was a solid brass, uh, part that had some pockets machined out. And, um, so I started looking at, Hey, I'd rather work with aluminum for the bulk <laughs> of the metal and put the weight, you know, save the, the brass for the, the weights on the, on the outer diameter of the spinner. Yeah, so I basically redesigned, and I I still think that third design, the, the aluminum and brass, it's the one I like the most as far as the design. It was the most challenging to design and, and fusion. And visually, that contrast is pretty nice too. Yeah, yeah, and that one actually turned out to be you know the cheapest one to make by far, uh, mainly because of material costs. Uh, there were some machining steps that were more complex than the earlier brass one. Uh, it got me to you know. 
explored drilling on the on the pocket and see and the other mill, which I had never done before. I had my other mill for a year and a half with the I, I don't know if I read it somewhere or just misread something. I thought it couldn't do drilling. Um, I think what I probably uh, was remembering is that it can't do rigid tapping. <laughs> and, you know, when I was first getting the CNC, that was all the same, you know, all the stuff didn't really know what it was. Right. So it's like, I just remember, okay, it doesn't do stuff like making holes very well um, with anything other than end mill. So that turned out of course to be false. Uh, it does a really good job at drilling. And so does the the nomad and that cuts the time down to make holes versus interpolation that I was doing for the bunch of small holes on there. It took a lot of time out of the process. That's probably where I saved half the batch time was switching to drilling. On, because you've seen the spinner, right? There's lots of holes in the uh, yep. center center buttons and in the actual in the body that line up with those holes. And I use some tiny little drills to make those. Uh, I could basically make all the holes in the time it used to take me to interpolate one or two holes with the tiny little 132 end mill. Peck drilling, or did you just plunge straight through? I think the thickest hole I drill is uh, on the body. I think I do peck on that one on the Nomad on the. On the center cap, I do that on the uh, other mill, and it's uh, I think it's 1.8 millimeters thick aluminum at that point that I'm drilling through. So I just do it uh, one pass because it's less than it's less than the tool diameter. Basically, the whole depth is just under one times diameter of the of the drill. So um, one thing I'm curious about is, are you reducing your price as you go along to maintain that margin, or do you just sort of keep that steady price based on your your um, an optimistic projection early on. Cause I know what I do is, uh, when I first come up with a product, like, um, let's say drone, sh- drone ship drink coasters, um, I'll sort of say like, Oh, it should take me about like 15, 20 minutes per coaster or something. And I, I work at a price, uh, based on the, the time I expected to take and the negligible material cost if it's wood. Um, and as I gain efficiencies, I improve my margin. So my, my profit margin right off the bat is probably pretty poor, but as, as I figure out how to fixture multiple sheets of wood and cut out multiple coasters at a time, it gets better and better. Do you, um, like your spreadsheet, does that change over time and does that change the price of what you're selling? So I, the price stayed the same because I kind of, it was kind of funny because I initially priced it around the brass model and the costs related to that and not doing it batch right so i was doing it small actually i was doing on the brass model the full or the 100 percent brass spinner i was doing a batch of three at a time so that's kind of when i first came up with the 100 120 dollar pricing kind of got me a margin that i was happy with over time i switched to the aluminum and brass which brought my material costs way down and i also was batching much more efficiently at 10 you know 10 items per batch and uh i left my pricing alone so my margin improved it wasn't by design. It just kind of worked out that way. I was going to sell them at whatever price folks were comfortable paying for them without overwhelming me with demand. <laughs> if mm-hmm. I sold, you know, one or two or three a month, I was I was good, right? That that was kind of the rate I was shooting for. Because again, I wasn't trying to create a product line. I was just trying to learn how to create a product line. If that makes sense, I was trying to learn how to do all the mechanics of putting it on some e-commerce platform, selling it, collecting the money, shipping. You know, a lot of I was listening to a lot of stuff that John Saunders was talking about with his much bigger business, and incorporating that into all the steps that I was using, switching to a you know a printer that could print a label directly from Shopify. All that kind of stuff is done, and I have it uh, kind of in my tool chest now for yeah. yeah for a real product down the road. 
it's an important system to have because right now I know I sell through Etsy um, just because I'm, I'm a low volume seller and I don't really want to deal with all the, the hassle. I just want to be able to print a shipping label um, that they generate for me. My workflow is really bad. Like I'll, I'll print something out upstairs in my bedroom. I'll walk downstairs, find an envelope, package something up, probably two or three orders at a time, uh, tape them up. And I, I find I just, it's like, well, there goes like 10 or 15 minutes just packaging up these couple things and at an hourly rate, like I just lost money. So developing and honing a system for your commerce is actually really important. Yeah, I think with you know the the volume and margins that we're we're talking about at the, the small home craft workshop is really what we have. Yeah, it can be tricky to make a profit. <laughs> so I mean, if that's your primary purpose, um, you really have to look at what you're making and the types of machines potentially, or the size of machines. That, that's one nice thing about the larger machines. You know, capabilities are increased over the small machines, but you know, one of the big things they have is machine table size, right? So you can, I, I was looking at the Tormach, how many spinners could I do in one batch on the Tormach? <laughs> <laughs> and they're faster, right? But, um, so yeah. if, if I was actually gonna try to make a living doing this EDC stuff, I would definitely probably need to go up uh, you know, to a small industrial machine or a Tormach class machine just to get the economies of scale. Um, but for me, I don't know if that's what I wanna do. Maybe, maybe after I retire. Right now, I'm pretty happy with the capabilities I have in this workshop. Uh, I, I do like the idea of doing commission work, especially mm -hmm. if, uh, you know, especially if it's a one-off. I have not figured out how to price that work yet. That's more complicated for me. If it's not my design, I'm doing something, or even if it is my design, like maybe someone, uh, my sister's a good example. She, she's come to me with a couple of things that she wanted to make. She just had an idea of what she wanted. I actually did the design and, you know, several designs, right? Showed her the, the rendering until she kind of said, oh yeah, that's what I had in mind. Can you make me one of those or two of those? Um, like if I was doing that for a real customer, I don't have the model in place to figure out how to price that. Cause that's really, that's almost all labor, right? You, there you have to capture your design, your R and D costs uh, yeah, to that's... really, to really recoup. Cause you're not going to be making more than one or two. That's it's tricky. It's a different, different mm -hmm. business model. And that's a dangerous sort of field to get into. Like if someone sends you a picture of like a sign that they want engraved and it's like multi-layer and you can't just do a simple like um, convert bitmap to a vector format and cut it out. Uh, there, there could be like half an hour, an hour work that goes into it that if you don't capture that in your price, then you're, as a, from a business standpoint, you're, you're not doing really well. And it's going to be hard to justify that, that side hobby or a side hustle. I've heard some people say they charge like a design fee. And if you, you follow through and they actually do um, actually buy the finish, like they, they commit to buying it, um, that counts towards their uh, their price. So if you charge like $200 for a custom sign, but someone's like, hey, could you take this design and, and sort of let me see what it would look like? Uh, you charge them like 30 bucks, like right off the bat. And just so they don't walk away. Because uh, if you do all this work, you you do a rendering for them, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't really like it." Like that's still time out of your your day. Yeah, I agree. I think you know, that's that's pretty common in the bigger shops. To you'll incur you know some uh, engineering charges up front, creating a model or or drawing or whatever it is that they think they have to do to put it in the format that the shop's comfortable bidding on. When you're talking more craft work and the and the customers, you know, a typical 
non-professional right? <laughs> or non, non-industrial person that just says, hey, I want this ring or I want this, uh, you know, I want this necklace made or something like that. It's probably a little more challenging to explain to them why their, you know, their napkin drawing is not sufficient right? <laughs> to go to mm-hmm. finish product. It's good work to take on because I think I mentioned in the last podcast that you know you'll it'll push you beyond your comfort zone in modeling and machining to take on occasional outside designs and see if you can make them to the customer satisfaction. But it's it's a different kind of work. It's it's challenging working on someone else's concept for me. Like I, I do want to do more of it, even if it's not for for commercial reasons, just to build my skill set. But I'm not sure how folks are making money doing that. I think there, you know, it takes time to really build a personal brand, and that's really where you probably influences your pricing ability. How about as an academic exercise? Let's say I wanted to commission you for a commemorative plaque. Let's say my coworker's retiring. How would you approach that problem? I think the first thing I would look at is do they have a fusion model, right? If they they probably won't. Like my, I'm actually doing something similar. My my sister wants me to make a, a gates a gate. Uh, a metal sign to go on the front of it, a monogram sign. And it was always too big for me to make before in any of my machines until I got the shape Oko. So now it's actually, I can make it. Um, so yeah, the first thing is how big do they, is the object they want? And is it within your, you know, the work envelope of your machines? I would hope they have at least a, a drawing or, or some sort of conceptual visual thing that I could look at. Yeah, I usually, I can't work from, from scratch. So if they don't provide me a, a graphic or a visual, I, I usually, I'm not inclined to take on jobs like that just because I'm not a great graphic designer. So I much prefer it when they have a design ready. You know, logos are challenging, right? Because sometimes they, uh, all they have is 2D artwork. And I'm, I, I don't have a lot of expertise on converting 2D artwork to machinable engravings at this point. I can do simple designs. Um, and a lot of times there's going to be color too, right? They're going to want the color. And like, I can't do that. <laughs> I can do one color, right? you know, two or three becomes complicated. Yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't give you an answer cause I've actually not priced out work like that. I think the first, actually I'm trying to think all my commission work so far has been at a loss basis. I would say, you know, other than yeah, <laughs> I, covering the materials, but I, it's labor of love. <laughs> it's either for a family member or somebody, you know, I don't really want to charge. So other than the cost, right. I think this year I'll, I'll be doing more though, um, opening up. I've, I've got some inquiries from some Instagram folks. Like I know there's a market for RC car parts. I guess they buy the commercial RC cars and then they replace parts that tend to break often with something stronger. So there's actually designs out there. Um, they're already complete and there's CAD models for them and the hobbyists don't have a way of making them. So they're like, hey, can you make this part? I'm looking at that stuff right now. Perfect for the uh, pocket NC. Five axis is good for that. It's reached the point where, you know, they've asked me if it's possible and I, or if I'd be interested in the work and I said yes. And they're kind of trying to finalize the, the model, the, you know, the part the way they want it. And we'll see if they come back and actually give me something I can bid on. That, that part hasn't happened yet. It looks pretty easy to make. Would be good for your uh, your plate stock fixturing thing. Yeah, exactly. It's just the kind of part that they would leverage that pretty well. I guess I haven't answered that question yet uh, about the plaque pricing. So I'm going to run a couple things by you, and you can tell me whether or not I'm missing something. Um, but for, for your basic project, um, material cost has to be met. Like yes. that, That's a no-brainer. So it'd be cost of the wood 
plus like a, a small markup or margin because you have to go out and get it if it's um, custom lumber that you have to go to a hardware store for that you can't just go to like Home Depot. Um, like for me, if I want like a nice mahogany slab or something, I got to drive out by Trenton, which is like 45 minutes away to where I usually buy my hardwoods. If it's like I'm buying a couple board feet and it's like 40, 45 bucks, I'll just round up and say it's $50. Then there's the direct labor costs that you can calculate, right? So based on your machining time, if it's going to be like two or three hours of machining plus an hour of material breakdown of, and finishing, um, you factor all that in. And then there's, they say you should always put in a little overhead, right? Because you said you didn't account for end mills and stuff. I know that when I was making and engraving my drink coasters that I broke a couple 132nd inch end mills. So that's a couple dollars Plus, there's electricity, air conditioning, and, and just wear and tear on the machine. So I, I usually charge a couple extra percent for that. And even then, figuring out what your labor rate is can be a pretty tricky subject. Just starting out, it's, it's probably natural and okay to charge a little lower. But what I've been trying to do is eventually move to sort of a, a day rate basis. My time is worth three or $400 a day. And... When you're trying to scale back and say, like, hey, how do I sell, like, one of something, uh, what I would do is say, like, okay, how many of these could I make in a day and divide my day rate by the number of objects or pieces that I've made? Um, so that's one way to, to sort of price on a per-object basis, or it's just purely based on, a, like, your hourly calculation. And there's room for optimization in that process, but there's also room for your estimates to be way off. So I might think to myself, oh, that'll be like two and a half hours of machining. But in between the amount of time it takes me to do a tool change, to like load the part, to, to zero off, like that's a couple extra minutes for every single piece. A year ago, I would probably underestimate the amount of time that it takes to make something by like up to 25%. That's a margin that you need to be aware of going into this pricing. Like how good is your, your cost estimation? And if it's if you're pretty new in this this game of selling, that margin's going to be uh, pretty high. You might want to just tack on a little extra just to be safe. I think that's something that a lot of hobby machinists might struggle with, that initial estimation part. If it's a new part that you hadn't made before uh, or a change, right, there's a lot more risk uh, the first time you make the part than the 50th time you make the part. I think one of the better pricing discussions I saw, although it's, you know, it was aimed at big job shops, right? But it was, there, there was nuggets of good information in there, even for, for somebody trying to do this at the, at the Etsy level, uh, Titan Gilroy, Titans of CNC had a YouTube episode where he talks about, uh, his pricing model, like how he, how he prices, uh, third party job shop work, you know, where the part comes in from some outside source and they want, you know, X number of made, right? Um, but he goes into a lot of detail on, on, uh, the spreadsheet that he uses for pricing and yeah, he's got stuff in there. I wouldn't have thought about, but a, a lot of it was what you were talking about, you know, right up front before you even start milling it, you've got to deal with, uh, you know, tool acquisition costs, material acquisition costs. Uh, I think he even had, he had something in there, which probably didn't, not relevant for us, but, uh, you know, the, he, his machines, when they're busy making that customer's part, they're not making other customers part. So it's an opportunity or there's a cost of running the machine and the cost of uh, having it committed to that person's part that he captures back in the pricing. And then in the end, you know, he, 
he rolls all that up and and then looks at the competitive landscape and whether his price is you know the price that he has to charge would even be competitive and if it's not i don't i think he just doesn't bid on the work right you know there may be some crazy demand from the customer that just can't be met with the particular machines he has in his shop i think a lot of that is uh i, I guess experience counts for a lot as you get more comfortable with making machines and or making uh, parts on machines you kind of start to get probably an intuitive feel right up front on the effort kind of complexity to getting the the part from customer concept to final sellable product uh, but for us you know we don't do enough of it i think we're always going to be struggling with getting uh, you know at least enough money back on the product to cover your costs so that's that's always a challenge i think if you actually do want to take it full-time there's just so much overhead that you don't even consider like running the business itself is its own beast. Like you've got to do like taxes. If you've got employees, there's payroll. And luckily I'm going to do my own taxes anyway, and I don't have employees, but there's, there's a lot about running a business that doesn't go into just the pricing of a part. Yeah. I think there's kind of a a limit on how far you go and still basically just be hobby uh, venture, like what I'm, I'm doing here and pretty much what you're doing over there. So I think, you know, part of starting a business is you learn pretty quickly, right? Where things, what things are working, what things aren't working, what you're doing wrong is going to be shown to you very quickly by your bottom line. But I think even as a a part-timer, there's still some value in considering your time on an hourly basis, even though like what you're, you're selling and how you're pricing, it's not going to pay for your cost of living, but it's good practice just to sort of have that that spreadsheet or however you calculate a price out and also charge a price that doesn't devalue the market. Like if you're part-time selling your spinners for like $60, you've just spoiled the market for everyone else and yourself in the future. So you want to have these good practices uh, going into it, no matter what, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for charging what the market will bear, right? Um I think a lot of times the challenge is the other way around. You're going to find uh, that you can't make the product profitably uh, and sell it to a market that's probably already selling similar products at much well below your cost, right? Because as soon as you're competing with mm-hmm. anybody that's got any kind of uh, mass production capability uh, for a popular item, you know, you're you're not really selling on volume at that point anyway, right? You're if you want to have a chance at all, you got to be selling something that's unique either unique because you're the only one that makes it or unique because you made it exactly the way the customer wants and they can't, you know, they have the only one like that, right? There's a lot to lot to be said about uh, bespoke products. That's a, a good area to explore for, for people with shops like ours. Um, the way I sort of look at product lines is, is it something where um, you're sort of determining the price yourself? Like no one's making this. I need to, to calculate out what I think the cost would be. And then there's things um, where it's, it's kind of like the Etsy model where a bunch of other people are making these like ring boxes and you sort of have to price around the market. That can be tough to get into if like, hey, this is the first time I'm making a ring box. I don't quite know all the economies of scale and how I'm going to do this and how I'm going to eke out efficiencies in my toolpath. Uh, that can be a struggle unless you like really have a good idea going in. That's why I like the more open-ended stuff. Someone comes to you and say, says like, hey, I need a plaque. This is the graphic I want to use. And they're going to you because they know you're going to put your own twist on it or it's it's custom. It's not just like your cookie cutter. You go to an award trophy shop and get something made. We'll probably be revisiting this topic over future episodes as we kind of learn more. And I think eventually, you know, one of us or the other will probably have a, a new product to kind of collect more data on. 
So like mm-hmm. I said, the spinners, are, you know, spinners kind of at their end of life, but uh, whatever is next, you know, we'll probably have some better data points to talk about. And there are always going to be new data points, right? So my the project that's coming out this week, hopefully, the uh, Dragon uh, Bottle Opener, is is a part that I've listed on Etsy for like 150 bucks, which I know is completely ridiculous for the market. But if you're looking for something that's like engineered to a certain price point, that's not it. It's priced more like an art piece. Right. And I really don't expect these to sell. Um, I've got one person lined up for sort of a, a partial swag trade type payment option um, just because I I tend to cut deals with people that I know or are associated with SpaceX. But there's no business model for making that item. It's sort of more an experiment. And being a part-time content creator with a full-time job, I'm blessed with the opportunity to explore projects like that. But the pricing for that is driven mainly by the fact that I probably spent like six to eight hours like in front of Fusion, like just fighting the STL model, trying to build tool paths on a mesh that doesn't really have any firm contours that I can select. Um, trying to figure out how to fixture an irregular shape for basically two setups on the Pocket NC. That's a lot of R&D work. And it's it's impossible to recoup those costs and still have a product that's at a price point that people will accept unless you go into like super high volume manufacturing. Business is hard. It is. It's neat that you have the opportunity to basically work a project for whatever reason, you know, personal satisfaction, labor of love, and then potentially in the end, you know, you have the one you made for yourself that you want. You might have the ability to sell a few others, right? Yeah. That's actually, that appeals to me a lot. I think the spinners actually weren't something I ever wanted. I'm not into spinners myself. Um, I probably wouldn't have ever actually gone beyond render stage if there hadn't been some folks uh, really asking for one. Uh, but some of the, you know, pretty much everything else I make here is stuff that I either need myself through, you know, a tool or a, something that I just thought was kind of fun to make. Probably about half of those would, wouldn't be out of place on Etsy. So I probably will explore a little more, kind of work on projects that potentially have a, could have a revenue stream associated with them, even if it's, you know, small and, and short, short product run type items. If, if they make a good project one way or the other, and to me, like good project means either I'm learning something new on the fusion side, like something I haven't done before, or I'm learning some new machining strategy, or I'm in the case of like the pocket and C just learning a whole different approach to machining with five axis. Um, those are all wins for me when I'm kind of picking things to work on for projects. Eventually I'll get comfortable with those, whatever those new skills are and really focus more on making the, making whatever the object is, you know, better, right. Improving finishing, making it quicker, you know, more efficiently, that kind of stuff. Even if it's just one for me, right? I think we probably both do that. We, we're CNC nerds, so we like to get good at the uh, the efficient machining within the limits of our machines for its own sake, not necessarily for production efficiency, for, for revenue enhancement, so to speak. Yeah, I think over time, you know, we'll hopefully have some products where you're going with your, uh, with your capsules. Sounds interesting. I, I could probably just cut up a bunch of uh, stock blanks and mount them in the pocket NC and just let it run passively in the background for, for like a couple of days or weeks. And then I'm actually might be able to sell in a great enough volume that I could lower the price a little that like it's a win-win for both myself and customers. For me, the, the fun in this experiment is sort of, yeah, I can do a couple iterations, optimize my toolpaths, but 
I also just did this project so I can get better in five-axis machining. So I can improve a project up to a point, but the bigger picture is improving myself. Like I want to build different projects so that I can gain a better skill set so that when someone comes to me for a commission piece later, like I have all these techniques in my, my toolkit that I can draw on. That's, that's kind of why like my Etsy storefront, I put a couple things up, it sells out, and then I just I try and move on. So I'd encourage other people, if you have the freedom, just push yourself to try different projects that involve different techniques. Build up a skill set that way, because I think having sort of that portfolio um, helps you in the long run if you're looking for custom like commissioned work and things that just aren't like a sign where you customize it by changing the text. Like it'll actually uh, make you able to take on more complicated projects and for for people to sort of appreciate your eye for design or your artistic talent more so than just, hey, they have a CNC. Let me, like, let me just have them do something really basic, like engrave my name or like cut my name out in a sign or just cut like one of those like wooden signs that says like home or gather or whatever. It'll give you the ability to branch out a little more. Yeah, I think you know, a lot of it comes down to uh, what's your motivation for you know playing in say this, the digital fabrication space in the first place. I think for both of us, it's more around learning and kind of mastering all the technologies that are integral to digital fabrication, like CAD CAM machining. For me, that's enough to kind of make the whole thing satisfying. Just doing the process uh, and getting better at it. I think you know other folks are coming into this probably with more of a product or revenue goal in mind. And I'm really focused on making sure I don't take the fun out of what I do by trying to grow a business to, at the expense of a hobby at this point in my career, especially with, you know, I still have my day jobs. <laughs> I, I'm not looking for like time crunch and stress related to things going on in my workshop. Um, once I retire, I would be much more open to potentially expanding into, into revenue generating CNC. But right now I'm just kind of playing around with all the concepts behind that, right? The store, the shipping, packaging, you know, some batch machining, that kind of stuff. So that if the day does come, I'll kind of at least have some idea of what I'm getting into. Um, how do you see yourself like just moving forward right now? Because based on my experience, I, I really don't want to offer up large amounts of uh, items on Etsy. I, I kind of just want to sort of cruise by, make things that I want put like and make a couple extra and put up the extras on Etsy but I'm not trying to look to establish like a new product line or, or something are you planning on just adding more selling to your shop plans in the future or are you sort of just going to keep coasting as a and try and stay as a low-key hobby with a little passive income yeah I, for the near term it's more the latter um, I do want to make more products in the EDC space the everyday carry space Oh, there, I mean, it's a broad market, right? There's all kinds of silly stuff out there. Or not silly, but uh, <laughs> things you wouldn't think that would sell, but sell really, really well. I know, like, I've noticed, like, titanium, like, keychain bottle openers and, like, little tchotchkes like that. Yeah, there's some really great products out there. You know, like the stuff that, I think it's Tactical Keychains. This is Instagram name, but he makes these really nice uh, tuck. They're, they're little, uh, like, case cutter blades. or, the, or exa- Actually, I think they're, like, exacto blades. And so, you know, he makes the aluminum housing for this little, you know, sliding utility knife. You know, and then there's key bar and like key man the key management product that he sells. Again, very simple, but they were all for the most part, they were unique ideas or pretty close to you know either the first or the second person that came up with something like that or refined refined some simple idea into something that's 
was a little more uh, marketable. But I noticed all those guys, they're all, they all have industrial VMCs, or at least a Tormach, right? I haven't seen anyone that's kind of doing anything in that volume on, on, our, on our class of machine. But I think there's some smaller artisanal stuff that is being made on stuff like, well, I, I'm leaving the Shape Echo out of this because Shape Echo is definitely doing a lot of commercial work. Um, especially like cabinetry and stuff like that. But on the Nomad and Pocket NC and other mill, I think there's um, there's some artisanal products being made on those that I've seen out there, but you know, nothing in high volume. Um, I don't think anyone's you know figured out how to how to make a thousand of something on any of these machines. The just from a production standpoint, based on your spindle power, your feed rates that you can achieve on those machines, like I know the Pocket NC's sixty inch per minute speed limit was definitely slowing me down. Um, so that machine's great for prototyping, I think, but I don't know if I would use it in like a full-fledged production line type setup. Yeah, I think where it can be good is mold making, right? Especially with on the Pocket NC. If you're going to make jewelry or something like that uh, that's cast out of precious metal, these machines are great for making the mold. So you only have to make that once or twice, right? And then you can crank out lots of parts through casting that you could sell and customize. If you're doing a lot of fully custom work, then every mold's gonna be unique, right? But um, that's an area that's interesting to me because you, you know, the margins are pretty good on it. Uh, you don't have to do a high production volume because they're, you know, these, these things sell pretty good price and there's a lot of room for bespoke design, but I know nothing about casting, so. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I was thinking about it from the standpoint of like, hey, if I have to make more wooden SpaceX Dragon capsules, like. I know 60 inches per minute, 10,000 RPM. I could basically triple that and triple my feed rates. Um, it's just for that material, um, for that that combination of performance, there's a lot of uh, performance left on the table uh, using the Pocket NC. Yeah, prototyping is definitely a sweet spot. Um, yeah, Ken, we were talking about the shop. So one of the other bits of advice I would give uh, for selling is, you know, Keep an eye on your recurring costs, right? Especially if you're selling sporadically like I do. Um, there's some costs that even though I may go months without selling because I don't feel like making spinners, um, I still, if I'm not careful, I'm still having to pay, you know, fees to Shopify. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I, I think that was the main recurring one. So be aware of uh, how high a volume you're going to be running through your store. They're going to be down periods. Uh, if you're doing kind of sporadic or on-demand fulfillment, then you might want to, be able to put your store either in a dormant state or, or pick a lower cost uh, e-commerce platform that you're comfortable with. Um, like I'll probably actually be moving off of Shopify over to Big Cartel. I love Shopify, great product. I think even at the lowest price point, I'm probably not going to have enough volume this year to to justify paying the monthly fee. I think there's, you know, I'll start probably with something simple like Big Cartel. And eventually if I focus more on the revenue side, I'll switch back over to something like Shopify. They're really set up for a kind of ongoing store. I haven't tried Etsy too, so I don't know if I'm going to give Etsy a try down the road for some of the stuff. I don't know what market it reaches versus stuff like Shopify. And um, The benefit of Etsy is that it, it's sort of like Amazon. You've got like seller ratings. It's its own ecosystem, which um, makes discovery, like just organic discovery, boost your chances of getting uh, found. And um, based on the, the feedback platform, it, it can sort of boost people's confidence in buying your product. And also the there's not that monthly recurring fee issue, although they are increasing their um, their cut of your profits from like 3.5% to 5%. So that's actually why I was looking to perhaps move from Etsy somewhere else. At this point, 
I'm way too low volume to to care right now. It's it's challenging on the unless you're really going into this with the focus on profitable business, it's it's tough to kind of maintain the the revenue um, unless you're focused on it 100. percent I look at John Saunders, John Grimswell, and that's you know they started I think similar to us. Uh, other than they both, or John Saunders for sure, I think had a business in mind when he first went into it. I'm not sure John Grimsmo did, but he ended up there, right? <laughs> I think he kind of started like us just making stuff that was kind of cool for himself and maybe some friends and was surprised by the demand. Uh, I don't really know. Actually, I'm not all that familiar with his origin story, but uh, that's my perception from kind of listening to him on the podcast. It's more of an accidental businessman at first, and now he's, you know, he's killing it, right? Yeah, he's uh, embraced that role pretty fully. Yeah. Yeah. If, I, if my story went something like his, I would be very happy, you know, kind of start, you know, that's one scenario for me, right? I start messing around like I'm doing now and then maybe settle on a, a one or two products that actually have some potential and, and could justify, you know, raising funds for a bigger VMC and, uh, or bigger industrial machine and space and start cranking those out. I think my bias is always probably going to be towards making my own products versus being a job shop. You know, I've kind of talked a little bit about why I would take on some outside work. But uh, to me, the, the appeal of making my own products and the CNC just kind of being the mechanism that enables me to create whatever it is I want to create and sell. Um, if I'm going to have a uh, kind of a commercial shop in the future, it'll be more of like that. It'll be manufacturing my own products. That's my guess. <laughs> my best guess as of today. Right? Yeah, no, I, I can sympathize with that. So uh, on the capsules are you making do you make one of those at a time like from beginning to end on the uh, pnc and then queue up the next one or is that you do all the steps the way the operations are laid out i i basically have two setups the first one is the uh heat shield side of it uh facing up um where i machine the um the recess where the bottle opener is going to go and the little cavity where i'm going to insert the fixturing jig that i have I basically mount a block of wood to an MDF platform, bolt that platform onto the pocket NC, and I machine out that bottom side of the heat shield. And so I can swap in multiple blocks, um, just run the heat shields for uh, multiple capsules in series because they all use the same tool. There's no tool changes. And uh, once I have that done for like the, the biggest run, I, biggest run I've done is like three capsules. Machine the heat shields for all three of them, pull them off, and then uh, set up the uh, work-holding fixture for the next operation. For machining out the rest of the capsules, there are some tool traditions involved. So I, for that, I will keep one capsule on until I finish it, run through the different tool changes, then load up the next one. Instead of saying, loading up capsule one, running the operation with a quarter-inch end mill, uh, loading on capsule two, with the same end mill. I'd rather just do the tool changes and keep what's on the uh, pocket NC static. Because when you're trying to fixture and like bolt on a piece of wood, uh, wood can move on you if, if it absorbs like moisture If over the course of like a day or two as you're machining, um, it can move on you. So for me, it's just, it's more accurate. Once I have a piece of wood bolted down, don't touch it, only change the tools. Uh, so that's sort of my workflow for how I make them. I like that idea of, uh... You know, if you can get away with a single tool, do all three, uh, the bottom side at once. Yeah, I, I, like one of the optimizations I spent on the spinners was, or I spent some time on was around the tool set. First few batches I made, I was doing lots of different tool changes and uh, all throughout the whole process. So I, I did a little bit of engineering change on the actual model 
to try to get all the tool changes uh, either at the very end of the batch or at the very beginning. You know, so the really long uh, adaptive, the stuff that took seven out of the eight hours was all with one tool. So it's worth, you know, it's worth kind of looking at the model if you have the leeway to adjust it to use the tool you already had loaded for a previous op in the next op. And sometimes it might just be adjusting the size of a hole so that that slightly larger end mill will fit. And you don't have to go fit the slightly smaller one. A lot of the features on the spinner were aesthetic, right? So I had some leeway in sizing and, and, and location of them. One thing I've uh, I've had to look out for is your lead in and lead outs, because sometimes those will bump into adjacent parts. Yeah, so I I, I have a yeah I know it's not the most optimal strategy, but like for the batch stuff, I was doing a lot of two uh, D contouring to cut the outer profile because it was it was almost like cookie cutter out of a plate, right? So I didn't have a lot of room between one part and the next. I tried to op- optimize that to get the most parts out of a given plate of stock, and uh, so I end up using two D two D contour to just cut around full width around the the product to cut it out. I learned, yeah, I learned all about the lead-ins, lead-outs just don't work there because it's going to be like the tool be buried deep in that pocket, right? It's just wide enough to hold the tool and then it'll try to lead out to the full thickness of the stock. So I end up using ramping, which is horrible, but it gets the job done. Yeah, that's a good point. I've definitely uh, been bitten by the lead-ins, lead-outs. We've gone on for over an hour now. Do you want to start maybe wrapping up? I, I guess next week for you will be more capsule work, refinement of that process. I, I want to finish out the last couple of capsules I have, apply mineral oil finish. I want to make like just a little plug in the bottom to go in where my work holding hole was, just to sort of cover that up and, and make it look a little more presentable. And that's also probably a good place to put my uh, brand on it. And uh, I want to step away from that project because I've got most of the footage I need for the video and then just move on to the next one, which I've been testing some interesting end mills from X-Edge Tools. They have these uh, cutters with a really slow helix angle and chip breakers that are meant for like uh, soft plastics, PVCs, HDPE, that kind of stuff. So I've been doing some tests there. Hopefully we'll have something to share end of the month, maybe. What about you? What are you working on? I'm waiting for the uh, 80-20 extrusion order to I guess it's being processed right now. So hopefully that's going to ship in a week or two so I can get the enclosure built for the shape echo. But uh, while I'm waiting on that, I'm actually working on the mounting solution for the laser. So I have that op lasers, uh, six watt blue laser. I'm trying to figure out how I want to mount it as kind of a sidecar with the spindle or just go ahead and pull this, the router motor out and have it drop in in place. I think I'm going to go with the uh, mounted like to the side of the spindle to make sure uh, I have enough room in front of the shape echo with the dust boot on it to clear the enclosure. So that, that's kind of what I'm working on this week. Uh, I have also, uh, I'll be doing the uh, commission part on the pocket and see that little gear train piece. I should have that finished by Friday. That's, that's all I have planned. I'm sure I'll be doing some fun stuff in there somewhere. I was just going to throw in um, before we wrap up is uh, if anyone's looking for a good reference on, on how to price your work um, just because Ed and I, we're not professionals. Um, uh, the Made for Profit podcast has an episode specifically about this, which is a fantastic resource. And just in general, if if you like learning about like lean manufacturing and just listening to two guys shoot the breeze about that, Business of Machining, John Saunders, Grimsmo, great guys. Okay, we're well past the hour that we allocated for this podcast. I'd say that wraps up this episode of the Digital Fabrication Experiment. I would agree. 
Well, I'd like to say thank you for listening and please join us in two weeks for the next episode of the Digital Fabrication Experiment.